0: Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive now i partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact in this first season join me in learning from entrepreneurs ceos army generals police chiefs war heroes thought leaders and more be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world school of hard knocks our guest today is dimitro Dovgopoli. he is a procurement leader who retired in 2019 With more than 30 years of global experience with the United Nations. He spent his last 10 years as Director of the Procurement Division, managing UN expenditures of more than $3 billion per year. Dimitri led critical, high-value procurement projects in dozens of countries throughout the world, including Mali, Liberia, Chad, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, and more. He led the UN disaster relief procurement for the Ebola pandemic and the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake. He established the UN Regional Procurement Office in Entebbe, Uganda. Dimitri holds a doctoral degree in international relations from Kiev National University and currently works as a corporate advisor for an international environmental company fighting oil spills. He and his wife, Catherine, currently reside in Spain. Dimitri, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kumar. And thank you for this generous introduction. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, we're, I'm just so thankful that you were able to make uh, your time available because you're gonna bring such a different and diverse perspective based on your, your many adventures around the world. So I, I look forward to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what led you into the United Nations?
1: I believe it was destiny, it was fate. Uh, I was born in the Soviet Union Of course, we couldn't talk about leadership, course, because it was a different universe. The only leadership that was allowed was the leadership of the Communist Party. So uh, I was in the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, and luckily for me, in 1945, Ukraine was granted separate membership from the Soviet Union. So United Nations had a member state, but didn't have enough Ukrainian employees, because mostly Moscow was sending their own people. So one day, it was in 1983, United Nations HR people came to Kiev, and they announced national competition for junior officers. It's like uh, junior lieutenant, uh, the uh, rookies, And uh, the only specialty they had was management. What did I know about management? I was doctor of history. I was young associate professor of history, but my English was workable. So I decided, okay, let me try. So I went for this exam. I set the three day exam for general knowledge, which was easy and not easy. They had a lot of questions in geography, like name two landlocked countries in Latin America. I still remember one paragraph, but the other one I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but this time I was able to answer, and uh, I passed general test. And then a year later, UN mission came again and said, "Now it's specialized test." Why, why the year different? I mean, what what accounts for that delay? Oh, at this time point in time, there were one hundred twenty five member states, and UN is very very slow in their recruitment. Mm-hmm. Each written test had to be graded by three markers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when there was more than 20% difference, they had to reconcile their scores. So it was a process.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it took a year uh, to get to the next stage. And the uh, uh, next stage was uh, conversation. And there were many unfamiliar words like procurement. <laughs> it was coming from centrally planned economy, what did they know about procurement? To me, procurement was a process of standing in line to buy 10 pounds of potatoes. That was procurement, yeah. So uh, still now with the benefit of hindsight, I understand that the HR people were not looking for specific knowledge. They were looking for people with ability to learn to study, to adjust, and to work in international group. They were looking at your manner, how you handle a question, rather than at your answer to the question. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky, I got selected. And uh, in 1987, and again, three years later, I got the job and uh, it was fate. I'd love to tell you that I was affected by lofty ideals of the United Nations, but this universe seemed so far away mm. that I cannot even claim that. I think it was just destiny that pushed me into this whirlwind for the next 32 years. Mm. Mm. That's how it happened. Yeah, it's, in- it's
0: interesting how uh, circumstances that are well, either beyond our control or things seem to kind of point us in a particular direction. And then, uh, and then, and then we discover Things come alive in us that we didn't know were there. I mean, and then you—you—you you, you have 30 thirty-plus years of, of of service around the world. How it's interesting how just how random that is, right? Just that that uh, them showing up to do a national exam, and that's that ultimately leads uh, to to this amazing career. Well, let me ask you, what was uh, what was your first formal leadership position that you held there?
1: Well, first of all, let me tell you about my. First position and how I survived okay. procurement. Yeah. When I joined, United Nations was using, as the rest of the world, typewriters. And they came, and there was a shortage of people in procurement. And they came, I started reading manuals, but then my more senior colleagues did not want to buy computers because it was a very ungrateful job. By the time computer is delivered, the processor is obsolete, it's the yeah. Moore's law. Right, and I fell in love with computers. I started reading magazines. I started looking what's inside. I started, and I became the first dedicated computer buyer in the history of the United Nations. Now we have IT procurement section. Well, the section was me. At the <laughs> <time>. <laughs> and Did you and say this is about 1987 or so? It was eight. It was 1987. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And. Uh, as a policy, we made a mistake. Instead of going for PCs, we went for WANG. And nobody would remember WANGs now, but, but it was it was a good experience which formed me as an officer. Mm-hmm. And I realized there's a good way to cope with the, uh, Moore's Law. You can put a contract in place like you do in the Pentagon, for example, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, IDIQ. Mm-hmm. And I became pretty successful buyer of computer equipment. And uh, then my management started looking at me with uh, more hope. And that's where I got my first formal leadership position. Uh, the United Nations was tasked to start a uh, peacekeeping mission in countries like Yugoslavia. And I was offered the position as chief of contracts unit in uh, this mission. And does that require you to be based there? Um, yes, okay. it required me to move to Belgrade. Mm-hmm. We started in Belgrade as a small unit. Providing initially, it was a very small mission: fifty military observers, not difficult. One morning we woke up; we had twenty thousand soldiers. And (laughs) uh, the mission developed, uh, uh, the war was uh, pretty severe, the member states were given new mandates, and someone had to provide for construction works, for engineering, for food, food was done locally, communications, and it fell on my unit, and it was trialed by fire. And it was my formal leadership position contacts unit. But then it got compounded by the fact that the United Nations was sent out of Belgrade shortly after deployment into Zagreb. So I had to go through new formal leadership, by hiring new personnel, training Uh new personnel, and starting from absolute scratch. So whatever mistakes I made in Belgrade, uh, I had a chance not to repeat them in Zagreb. I made new ones.
0: And how How long were you in Belgrade before you had to move to Zagreb? Uh, Like a month. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a very
1: short amount of time. It was short amount of time and it was interesting because the headquarters was technically in Sarajevo, yeah. but they were locked at the bomb shelter. So, so essentially everything fell on rookies like myself, mm. and we had to make decisions. Yeah. And it's do or die. And that's how you form yourself as an officer.
0: So, well, and that's a, that, that raises a question. So it sounds like you, you demonstrate your initiative and your flexibility in terms of the, the computer procurement that leads you into these positions of greater responsibility, did, did the UN do anything to, to prepare you for it? Or did you just have to rely on, on your own initiative to pick up lessons or figure out how to motivate people or com- just common sense?
1: You had to figure it out on yeah. your own. You yes. go to peacekeeping mission, you are on your own. Mm-hmm. And your best guide is your common sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you look at your senior colleagues who had 20, 30 years in peacekeeping, who started back in 1948 in Jerusalem. And you realize there are ways to do things, there are ways not to do things. Uh, so uh, like uh, uh, I had a boss who would go and sit in an ambush trying to catch engineers who would steal toilet seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, you're a senior officer. You're a colonel. You're getting in one hour more than they can steal. And we have people who do not have enough food. In the food field. <laughs> you know, but, but, and of course, you have an argument, and then you shake hands, and then you start new cycle, yeah. and you learn from each other. Because yeah, yeah. in other, in more stable environment, he was absolutely right in doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. When you are at deployment stage with peacekeeping mission, you really don't have time to go to ambush. You yeah. produce. Yeah, yeah.
0: It, I like that, yeah. What, so what did you learn from, from the assignment in Zadre? You know, what was your main takeaway from that as
1: you were developing as an officer? That the main rule is common sense, integrity, and being true to your word with your local stuff Mm -hmm. and being compassionate. Mm. Another thing I learned that you are not them. You will never understand the degree of their suffering. Mm -hmm. You cannot claim, but you can can show compassion. And when you show compassion, when you show understanding, they take you differently as a manager. Yeah. So that that, that was for uh, I don't know probably for standard management cooperation it's less important. But in the UN peacekeeping, uh, this sort of bonding with yeah. people who are in the middle of war, who yesterday lost their brother or cousin,
0: yeah.
1: uh, is very important.
0: Yeah, that really resonates with me. I you know I served as a peacekeeper in Bosnia in '97, and and was a civil affairs officer. So uh, I worked with. Uh, Um, some really, they've become my dear, some among my dearest friends, some translators that were, uh, that suffered tremendous, tremendously, you know, throughout, throughout the conflict, the war. And, um, you know, there, there is a, uh, I mean, this, you, when you say compassion, understanding, and really kind of recognizing what you, you don't know, they would share with me these interesting um, comments about, US translators, like for example, uh, you know, of maybe Croatian extraction that came from Chicago to serve as translators. And because, even though they spoke the language fluently and everything else, because they hadn't lived in the region and experienced it, they were, they were, you know, some were not as effective in in fully appreciating and reading the interactions of what was was happening in meetings and so on. Oftentimes they were more hardline too. They were less pragmatic. <laughs> I don't
1: know. <laughs> well, well, you know, please, colleagues who went through Bosnia can do anything. It's uh, I didn't know this about you. Congratulations, uh, and uh, I couldn't collect myself until two years ago to go back to Bosnia. Mm. Mm. So I went back there after twenty plus years, and uh, it was amazing.
0: It's amazing what they've done. I'll tell you, I, I, uh, I promised, uh, it, my job was wonderful because I would circulate among you know, the, uh, the various mayors and police chiefs to try to, uh, to promote reconstruction and community infrastructure projects and so on. And uh, I promised them that I would come back a couple of years later uh, with my wife. And sure enough, we flew into Zagreb. Uh, my former translator met me at the border and we, we drove uh, in to Burchko was where I worked. And and it was just, I learned so much about the world from that assignment, just in terms of uh, people's home, you know, their desire to be home and to do, make sacrifices to, I mean, incredible sacrifices to return to their original homes, the importance of of their their community and culture. Uh, I learned so much about the world Uh, and often actually, when I came out of that assignment, I thought maybe I wanted to work in the UN one day.
1: <laughs>
0: anyway, so let me ask you, you: you know, you probably you came in at the beginning. You talked about learning common sense and compassion. What uh, what did you believe at the beginning of your career that you feel differently about now?
1: In the beginning of my career, I believed, and my academic background was in diplomacy. And I believe that the UN is a tool of diplomatic competition. And uh, uh, it was the height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So you perceive UN as tool of Cold War, one of many. Mm-hmm. Now I take it differently. UN is a tool, it's still a tool of competition, but it's a tool of cooperation. It's a tool of working together. It's an instrument of Fighting climate change it's an instrument of doing uh, many wonderful things from radio frequencies to i know your background to designing passports designed mm-hmm. by international civil aviation organization the standard for your passport right. every day so i believe that cooperation is currently much more important than the competition
0: I'd, I'd like i'm going to ask you more about that later because i i think that's a international cooperation can be so challenging. And I'm really gonna be curious in terms of some of your perspectives on that, but I'm, I'm gonna ask you more about that later. Still focusing on your career, when, when you reflect upon your career, are there mentors that stand out for you that, that helped you develop as a professional?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, we didn't have formal mentors at this time. It came 20, 25 years later, formal mentorship programs. But there was a lot of informal mentoring and uh, I worked with, uh, I was lucky, I worked with very tough first boss who was very tough Malaysian cop. Hmm. He joined UN straight from police of Kuala Lumpur. Okay. Tough as nails. Mm-hmm. And he really beat good drafting and good manners in me. So he influenced me. Uh, the other colleague who influenced me, uh, she worked in travel, and for some time I had to work in travel. And, you know, what do I know about travel? I read some paper, and it says, round trip, round trip, round trip. I go to her, I say, ma'am, what is round trip? She looked at me, she said, are you that messed up? She used different language. <laughs> are you that messed up? <laughs> I said, I guess I am. She says, when you go back and you can uh, when you go there and you come back. I said, you know, I come from the Soviet Union. It's not in our culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she loved, she, she took me under her wing. She started teaching me 20 years later. I wrote her recommendation papers for UN manager of the year and she got this award. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. So that's, yeah. that's, that's how life works. And uh, she was uh, uh, technical support staff, mm-hmm. uh, but she taught me so many things uh, that uh, professionals didn't know, mm-hmm. uh, professional category. Uh, you get your knowledge wherever you can. And uh, it's uh, a lot of it is through informal communication with your colleagues and uh, just following what they do, and sometimes trying to replicate and sometimes trying to avoid.
0: Yeah, L- let me turn that around on you because you've risen to you know the highest levels of service. Um, how do you determine, um, what? causes someone to jump out at you as someone that you would like to perhaps informally develop or mentor what qualities do you notice that, that that motivate you to want to to invest in them ability
1: to well no let me rephrase curiosity uh that's first trait i look at the person uh you may have a very skillful procurement officer But in the United Nations, before they do procurement, I wish they would read the New York Times and the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because Washington Post today will be your procurement requisition tomorrow.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, when uh, I have a kid and they interview, I will start on international situation. One of the dangers... uh, that I saw in my profession. After a year or two, uh, my officers would start thinking of UN as one big procurement organization. Mm -hmm. And they used to invite young recruits for lunch with me and sightseeing tour of the United Nations, showing them this is Security Council, this is General Assembly, this is Trusteeship Council, that's what we're doing. So people will, try to understand the mission that they are not doing this to save money, that they're doing this to serve purpose. That we're just a small keg in the big international machinery. So for me to get a candidate who understands this was extremely important. And of course you look in their eyes and try to get the person with integrity. I really,
0: your point really resonates with bringing them to see the other arms, the mission um, components of the UN. I experienced that at ICE, where we wanted the mission support staff to really feel connected to the law enforcement operations and the undercover operations and the things that we were running um, throughout the country. Because the, the truth of the matter is, is none of that can happen without them. (laughs) <laughs> so, and it's really important for them to see that and, and value their work, but also to your point, uh, cost cutting, you know, independent of kind of understanding, um, the, the more nuanced aspects of the, uh, of the, the customer, um, is, can be detrimental. So, yeah, I, that's a really good point you make there. What about, um. When, again, when I think of your service in all the different countries that you've served in, um, conflict, post-conflict, how do you remain resilient during tough times?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, actually, after 2003, when the UN lost 22 colleagues in explosion in Canal Hotel, we started a formal uh, test training. So people who go to the field, who go through post-traumatic effect, they can get some sort of treatment. Also, UN does some preparation before you go on mission. For example, I had to go on many occasions to uh, Afghanistan in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And these are two points where you, before you're allowed to go to Kabul or Baghdad or elsewhere, Uh, you have to spend four days in Amman, Jordan, Mm -hmm. being trained by Jordanian instructors, being taken hostages, being uh, blown Mm. up, being interrogated. So you go for pretty, pretty tough training for a civilian,
0: for Mm -hmm. a civilian.
1: Mm -hmm. So this prepares you for... uh, uh, some hardship in the field. And of course, every two years, you take security training. Yeah, yeah. You learn how to call 12 year old with Kalashnikov.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Correct, and say, sir. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you have to, you, you, you have, so what I'm trying to say, first, you have to have knowledge. Mm-hmm. And second, it's good if you have good book. If you have hobby, mm-hmm. it's uh, good if you have friends. And it's all. It also helps if you are non-drinker. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, some people in tough environments they develop uh, uh, some bad habits. Yeah, Let's, sure. let's be honest about it. Sure. And that's one of the problems. Yeah. But, but hobby, ability to relax, ability to talk to people, ability to speak up, it helps.
0: Yeah, yeah. And how do you, if you're leading a team, uh, what did you do to try to promote a resilient
1: team? Try to create a sense of mission in the team. Uh, people take hardship much more willingly if they understand the purpose of the hardship. Mm that if we work today harmoniously as a team, tomorrow these children will not be shot at will not be will not be shelled. And when you have this unity of purpose, then people are willing to, to, to give a lot of sacrifice yeah. when, when you understand why you're doing this if you are doing this just for doing this because uh, we're here in a bad austerity environment it, it works for some time but, uh, but there are things no money can buy
0: yeah yeah and you when you're in these austere environments and you were in many of them around the world um i've got to imagine that the demands on family life must be uh, really hard i mean um i know i certainly experienced that in my law enforcement career being on deployments no notice being missing holidays and so on how do you you know? How do you
1: manage work life balance or integration? I think I failed mm. you know, uh, because work became at some point became substitute for life, mm-hmm. and also I understand you come from port and service background. Yeah. Yeah. So you know how it is. And you are uh, taken away from your family. Yeah. You are not there when your parents need you in your home country. You are not yeah. there when they're old. On the other hand, you are not with your child when child grows up. Right. Uh, so uh, a lot of people get divorced. Families disintegrate. And uh, there's a pretty... Uh, pretty vivid discussion up until this time, what is life-work balance for uh, foreign service career officers? Yeah. And I don't think there's a single correct answer to this question. It changes from foreign service to foreign service, duty station to duty station, wherever possible we open uh, the world having family duty stations. Yeah. But sometimes, like Northern Mali, what family? Yeah, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so is, not easy.
0: Is there anything, because this is a consistent, interestingly, for, for, for a number of guests, who all are in mission-driven, demanding careers, where you don't necessarily have the luxury of saying no to you know something that you would rather not do that's going to take you away from family. Is there any... Anything that comes to mind that you might have done differently that would recognize you can't change that, but um, is there anything that comes to mind that you could have done differently that might have just made it marginally
1: better uh, for the family? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Probably I could have delegated some of the things, mm. but I uh, uh, I was so involved and so ingrained in this that I had difficulty delegating. Mm-hmm. So I felt uh, it was my mission, something I only I could do. And this was by mis- uh, erroneous. Mm-hmm. I could have some of the stuff I did, I could have delegated to colleagues and uh, they would have been absolutely brilliant in that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now it's hindsight 2020. Yeah, that's right, right, yeah. right, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Um, Well, when you think about your overall UN career, what was most satisfying about it?
1: In my line of business, uh, I think we touched upon this a little bit. It's tangibles. It's when you see the fruit of your labor, you go to a peacekeeping mission. And okay, here's a fuel depot. And this is done by my contract, my contract, I did it well. Uh, I did environmental protection clauses, I did strategic fuel reserve, I did in-plane deliveries, and the mission is alive. Mm -hmm. And the soldiers have food on the tables. That's my contract, and I'm happy about these tangible things that and you don't think about uh, immediate experience of writing uh, satisfactory contract, but you think of End user, this soldier in the field who is happy, morale is high, and they're doing their job of protecting civilians better. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the most the most satisfactory thing to do. What did you like least about it? Meetings.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty common answer
1: for for any
0: bureaucracy, right?
1: And the higher I was getting up the ladder, the more pointless they would be, become. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you when you're at the executive level, it's almost uh, it's not even Pareto. It's uh, I, I I I don't know the percentage of so meetings uh, that uh, being called for the sake of uh, showing sure off, listen to your voice. Mm-hmm. So this was annoying. Yeah, yeah. I
0: I identify with that. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I didn't cause it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what, uh, what, if you think about your, you know, career in procurement, are there particular leadership skills that you think are more relevant in that field? or particular, what things, I'm sorry. A, a leadership like uh, skills, like is uh, creativity and innovation or strategic thinking or partnering, are there particular things that, and it may not be the case, but uh, I'm just wanna explore that a little bit. Is there
1: anything unique about leadership within the procurement community? I think integrity more than in any other UN office, it's integrity. Mm-hmm. It's a fiduciary responsibility. It's public funds, in my case, uh, $3 billion. It's a lot of money.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I had my per- personal delegation on my signature, $1 million. Mm-hmm. And for emergency situations like Ebola or Haiti earthquake, it's $10 million mm-hmm. So o- on my signature. Mm-hmm. No checks and balances because people are dying. So sign today, we'll sort it out later. Mm. But then when we're sorting it out, you'll have a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks who will be telling you that you should have done it in a different way. But, but at this point, your reputation works for you. You have trust. You have trust of your colleagues, of the system, and you are able to defend your decisions. Mm. And that's where integrity becomes a very important asset in your management uh, toolbox. Yeah,
0: you know, the other thing I'm hearing there is potentially decisiveness. I mean, uh, you've been given that delegated authority for a reason to be nimble and agile. And I would imagine that uh, you can't suffer a lot of analysis paralysis in making a decision like that when
1: people are in need. No, but also you have to be analytical because you always, it's easy when there's no choice, but you don't have, uh, when you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, when you have choices, some of the choices will make, uh, may cost lives. I'll give you one example. I was mentioning Canal Hotel. Uh, 18 out of 22 people in the Canal Hotel were killed by shards of glass mm-hmm. because we didn't have film, protective film on the windows of the hotel because some manager, made the decision to go identifying the lowest bidder mm-hmm. instead of protecting the premises and protecting his colleagues. Yeah. And that was a tragic mistake. So uh, you really have to, you really have, I, I am not calling on doubt in your decision, but you really have to have your priorities straight and you have to use your common sense. What's more important, lowest bid and subsequent audit? Or lives of uh, or the people. Obvious answer.
0: Yeah, but I would imagine though that even in that analysis, when you're being second guessed or someone's looking Monday, the Monday Monday quarterbacking, they may not necessarily be able to appreciate the the tragedy that was avoided. You know, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, for example, if if I just think that they're they're intangibles. It sounds like where if you're making a qualitative decision based on what you believe will be better protect peacekeepers, um, that may be a tragedy averted because of that decision. And yet, and so therefore it doesn't factor or weigh into the accounting, um, you know,
1: in terms of uh, subsequent review. Kumar, you've been in this business. You know how tough it is, and there's no one answer. Yeah. Uh, say, I came to Haiti two days after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. We had 35 aftershocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were 200,000 dead people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went scouting around the island looking for alternative premises. I found a good club med, 50 kilometers out of Port-au-Prince, a very good premises, and outside of red line zone. I went to the head of the mission Well, he was real Guatemalan aristocrat, seasoned diplomat. I came to him and said, sir, uh, we're moving to Club Med. He says, you may move. I'm not moving anywhere. I said, no, sir, it's not safe here. We are moving. He said, no. He said, why? Your life is in danger. Colleagues are in danger. He said, look, young man, there are 200,000 dead people out there. I cannot be seen leaving the town. He made this decision. He put his life at stake, his colleagues, but to him, reputational damage was more serious than his right. own life. Right. Yeah, and, and these are the decisions you're making. And that's yeah. where you doubt. And what's interesting with this man, we became friends. And whenever I was going for promotion interviews or whatever, he later became chef de cabinet he was always supporting me because he respected my position and mm-hmm. they respected his. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah. it's just we were coming from two different universes which were not compatible at the time. Yeah. But there's a lot of respect.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent example, actually. Uh, I love that. What um, When it comes, I mentioned earlier, talking about uh, international cooperation, um, what is most important when you're trying to um, to reconcile you know, competing equities or, or diverging interests in bringing together an international co- coalition to solve a
1: problem? Political will, political will. If uh, member states have enough imagination to understand the consequences. There was a very interesting study from the University of Central Florida Mm-hmm. They did verbal analysis of reports on Pearl Harbor, 9 11, and Katrina. And they identified four major causes of disaster just by doing the words that were the most common. Mm-hmm. And number one cause was lack of imagination on the part of government. Okay. So if a government has enough imagination, to understand the consequences of their course, they would go to other governments and they would cooperate, results would be better. Mm -hmm. If there's an egotistical position that we can do it on our own, then the price is usually very high. There may be short term benefit, but in the long run, it just doesn't pay. So political will and uh, uh, enough, enough Ability to understand the consequences of decision to 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 be confrontational.
0: Did, did you find? I mean, I, um, the stereotype it can be that you know rich Western countries might be more inclined to go it alone to solve a problem or something. Did you find that to be the case? And um, and and would you give an example of where maybe a country is bringing some important capability to a a multinational challenge, even though they may not have uh, the financial resources, it's some sort of other value add that they're bringing. Would you please comment on that?
1: I wouldn't say that Western countries are are doing this alone uh, because Western countries, well, there are Western countries and Western countries and even European Union, they're not monolithic, They, they, uh, they have pretty different policies. Uh, but uh, they, let's say uh, the United uh, States.
0: Let's let's say the
1: United States. Well, you're putting me on a spot here because uh, what I see now over the last hundred days, let me put it this way diplomatically, I see top caliber, high level diplomacy. Okay. what I see, I really like, I see uh, excellent uh, new ambassador permanent mm-hmm. representative of mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. And I see people like Samantha Power, whom I knew as one of the ambassadors, I see them going to positions like USAID, yeah. which clearly shows that these are human, Samantha is humanitarian, Ambassador Power is humanitarian. Yeah. And it tells me that the message has been sent to the world that the United States will not go on its own. Okay. Yeah. That the, 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 what you were saying it was correct for several years. Okay. Now this paradigm is changing, and the, the leadership is back, and it makes me very happy. Okay. Uh, when countries which are less developed bring something to the table, definitely, you'll never guess which country is the first to always speak at General Assemblies. Okay. You would say United States, no, United States is always number two, okay. the country which is number one is Brazil, hmm. and it has roots in 1945 when they created United Nations, and first General Assembly session, and it's already Cold War, Soviets look at Americans, don't want to speak and give Americans the right to respond, Americans look at Soviets, nobody's willing to speak, and then delegates of Brazil, who has nothing to lose, says, let me talk. So in recognition of courage of Brazil, it's an unwritten rule. Brazil always (laughs) speak first for the last 75 years. And this is just small symbolic, but there are things which are smaller. Number one contributor of peacekeeping troops is Bangladesh, I think still Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. Pakistan, India, uh, they're contributing. Uh, The uh, main support base in Africa is in Entebbe, Uganda. Mm-hmm. And I can give you many, many yeah. examples when uh, uh, even countries that are not that rich uh, uh, bring a lot to the table. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and very high quality diplomats. Mm-hmm. Some of the diplomats are among the, well, are. Diplomats are among the finest, like uh, I always quote two examples of Paris de Coelho who brought mm-hmm. with him a whole generation of brilliant Peruvian diplomats who believed in prevention of conflict. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and they raised a whole generation of people who dealt with prevention. And of course, Kofi Annan, mm-hmm. who brought excellent uh, group of African diplomats, skillful, yeah. excellent. So yes,
0: and when you are, uh, so you've, you've you've talked about just different diplomats that are coming in and, and and officers that'll be coming from countries all around the world. When we speak about uh, diversity and inclusion, we talk about kind of the um, how do we promote team belonging? How do we promote, you know, uh, operating as one and and um, and creating the the kind of psychologically safe space where anyone can feel fully free to express themselves and who they are. What did you do to try
1: to create those kinds of teams? People knew they could speak, they could argue, and uh, I would always promote people who would have their own point of view. Mm-hmm. people who did not have uh, their views and would just follow the leader. I was not interested in uh, working with, uh, with this group. They, they could be good elsewhere. Uh, but once again, I'm, I keep coming back to two issues. And this is two issues enshrined in chapter 101 of the UN Charter. Mm-hmm. Highest standards of professionalism and integrity. Mm -hmm. So the founding fathers, out of all managerial (laughs) qualities that were required, simple doubt, integrity, and professionalism. Mm -hmm. I have two favorite comedies about management. One is Yes Minister, uh, British uh, BBC series, when a person is totally deprived of integrity. Mm -hmm. And one is American and British, both, any of them, The Office, when manager is totally deprived of competence, yeah. Exactly. So, so,
0: <laughs> and, you get,
1: and you get what you get, you know. Right. right, So, to me, high standard of integrity and competence. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right.
0: Yeah. What
1: uh, What would you um,
0: identify as your proudest leadership accomplishment? That's and that's asking a lot, I know. Or you know, I mean, so it could be one of them, but. Uh, what would you care to share with the audience?
1: Uh, I started a senior manager uh, after major scandal in the UN procurement. We had two major corruption scandals, two procurement officers taking major bribes uh, to the tune of millions of dollars. One went to jail for nine years, the other one also went to jail. But, uh, and against this background, I took over procurement. And uh, my proudest achievement is, I think that by the time I was retiring some years later, uh, I changed the culture. Mm-hmm. To me, the culture of the office is the most important internal control. Yeah. When people care. Yeah. So so well, the change of culture was very important to me. Still is. How did you make them care? Uh, how made my... Uh, lots of things, by talking, by regular staff meetings, by meetings one-on-one, by taking my staff for coffee, one-on-one or group coffee, uh, by sending them on missions when business supposedly could have been done by teleconferencing but i would sign on their travel request and send them and give them additional assignment because i knew that they would come back reformed Mm -hmm. and uh, it's an investment in personnel so uh, and i was allowed i had very good management so i was allowed uh, those little liberties so i had uh, a very good generation of people who came after me yeah yeah um That's, that's, you know,
0: uh, in our coaching programs, we talk about trust and we talk about the importance of care and uh, communicating that you have the interests of that other person in mind when you're making decisions and so on. And I love the examples that you shared in terms of just this kind of personal one-on-one investment in someone. I think it's so critically important in terms of helping them develop, unlock their potential and to feel, you know, feel like they're part of something special for sure. Yeah. Let me, let me, let's like zoom out and do a macro uh, thing. What, what is the biggest misconception about the United Nations?
1: That the United Nations is a universal cure, that the United Nations is the world government. You see, it comes from very benign position. It comes, goes back to Woodrow Wilson, great American president who had a vision of the League of Nations where everybody will live happily together and work harmoniously. And uh, uh, President Wilson was way ahead of his time with this uh, concept theory. Uh, then FDR, another great president. He also had a bit of a misconception. He went through the war. He was... He wanted to stop what he formulated in the charter's scourge of war. Uh, but he, when it came to mechanics of the United Nations, he imagined UN as four policemen, United States, UK, uh, France, and Russia who would divide the zones of responsibility and each would keep uh, uh, law and order in their part of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you're talking about some of the countries, Britain was still a colonial empire. Russia was completely lawless and what for policemen? Look, look who is policing and who will police the police? Yeah. But the idealism, the misconception was ingrained in the very concept of the UN in allowing superpowers the right of veto right, to veto, and uh, by creating uh, an impression, wrongful impression, that here's the world government. Mm -hmm. It's not the world government. It's the tool. It may be a convention center. It may be a mediator, negotiator, facilitator, or you've been in Bosnia, it may be enforcer, but it cannot be all of the above.
0: Right,
1: right. (laughs)
0: Well, what do you think is the most uh, significant challenge the UN faces as
1: it moves into the future? We are in the election year. I had privilege of working for five secretaries general. And I believe that, and they saw transformations. Each secretary general had their massive reform program. I believe Antonio Guterres has the most massive challenge of them all. Mm -hmm. Because we went through pandemic, the world has seen that there's no need of diplomacy face-to-face. Diplomacy can be done by remote. A lot of countries cut their missions by half. People found different avenues of working on their problems, on negotiating solutions, and also on getting support. You had 10,000 people sitting in their cubicles supporting this effort yeah. but now these people sit in their new york apartments they mm-hmm. don't need to be in new york apartments it's becoming global truly global diplomacy is going through digital transformation yeah. and i believe if antonio guterres gets reelected for the next five years mm-hmm. he will have a challenge and he's an engineer by background uh he will have a challenge of uh Getting technology to serve diplomacy and to combine uh, to incorporate uh, uh, Zoom uh, into into diplomatic skills.
0: You know, I've I've spoken with diplomats who who are concerned about the idea. They say a lot of diplomacy happens at uh, at social gatherings and in hallways, and you know, in a, a lot of that happens outside of. Establish meetings. Um, do you see a way the technology can be leveraged to to try to still account for the the personal relationship uh, and the and the and the trusted conversations in the in
1: the corner of the room? I agree with you one hundred percent. Diplomacy must be personal. Diplomacy, uh, you must have the possibility to look in the eyes you must have an opportunity to whisper your question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, many things can be accomplished only in personal communication. But many technical missions, which are probably 80% of diplomats work these days, will either go away or will change the venues. And this will create a challenge of prepping young diplomats Mm -hmm. Because those people who are allowed personal communication now, the decision makers, the negotiators, creme de la creme, mm-hmm. they went through years of low-key coffees and lunches and et cetera. So this generation may be lost. And next generation, mm-hmm. which will come to replace those old-style ambassadors, may know nothing but Twitter. Mm-hmm. And to me, to me, Twitter diplomacy is, is a serious threat. Yeah. Elegance will be gone out of yeah. profession. Uh, that's why I'm calling it a challenge. If it were just technology and uh, uh, equipping conference rooms, that's another story. Right. But it's it's maintaining culture of the old while using the new culture.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's to me a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah.
0: Well, what are you doing now as a corporate advisor? Tell us a little bit about your current uh, interests and pursuits.
1: In my Current interest, I was offered uh, and uh, I jumped on this opportunity, actually. I was offered uh, a job with a multinational company who are fighting oil spills. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, did wonderful. They did over 2,000 oil spills worldwide. Okay. Uh, the most recent experience was in Mauritius there was a major, major disaster in Mauritius. They saved unique beaches of Mauritius. And uh, uh, I'm very happy that I had knowledge which went outside the United Nations. Mm -hmm. My corporate advice goes into political analysis, goes into war zones, goes a little bit into security situations. Goes a little bit into money, and combining it all into a mix. So sometimes it's looking at uh, competence. Sometimes it's looking at national procurement legislation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazingly interesting. I yeah. love it. Yeah. And uh, and second, I got very interested. Uh, at the time of COVID, i got very interested in risk management and supply chains and i am trying to write a book about supply chains and i went deep into history at this point i am into east indian and west indian companies uh. which i treat as supply chains ah so, that's so interesting uh, so i have I have history of India and history, My, the book that I'm reading now is by old colleague, Shashi Taror. Uh it's called the Age of Terror, I believe, uh, British Empire in India. Uh-huh. And it gives you a, a good uh, perception of what was happening when 70% of world trade was controlled by two corporations. Ah,
0: That, sound, ah, that sounds fascinating, that book. What's the name of the book? The Age of Terrorism?
1: Uh, 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 I think it's Age of Terror, uh, cannot tell you, but Shashi Tharoor. Okay. S H A, I'll text you after okay. we we'll finish. Okay. Okay. It's, yeah. All right. Uh, subtitle is History of British Empire in India. Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> well, Dmitri, thank you so much for sharing lessons learned you, during, during a, a, a career filled with accomplishment. Um, where can our listeners learn more about you and and you know what you're currently up to
1: uh, well let me tell you where I'm not I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and that, was, that was a conscientious decision. Yeah. I'm avoiding like, like <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, but for professional reasons, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. So so my profile is on LinkedIn. Send okay. me a message and they always reply. I'd be happy to. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Kumar. Thank you for inviting. Lots of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.